Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Unregulated Podcast. I'm your co-host, Tom Pyle. And I'm Mike McKenna. A little bit of background, I am the president of the American Energy Alliance. We are headquartered in Washington, D.C., and we are a watchdog for consumers. Uh, we advocate for affordable and reliable energy, and we uh, analyze policies and make sure that our politicians are not pushing policies that harm consumers. Let me get right into it. Last Thursday, EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler and Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao formally uh, announced that the, the Trump administration is planning to revoke California's waiver for tailpipe greenhouse gas emissions. I'd like to read an article from the New York Times dated last week. Just a, a quick excerpt. The Trump administration is expected on Wednesday to formally revoke California's waiver authority to set auto emissions rules that are stricter than federal standards, taking a major step forward in its wide-ranging attack on government efforts to fight climate change. Now, I'm not picking on the reporter here, in this case, Coral Davenport, in particular, because this is a trend that I have seen across the board with the coverage of this issue. The assumption that the media is making is that the Trump administration is seeking to take away California's authority to set stricter tailpipe emissions in the general sense. And the reason this is important is because uh, that is, in fact, not what the Trump administration is doing. The Trump administration is merely revoking one waiver. The state of California has submitted over the past 20 years or so hundreds of waivers, or at least more than 100 waivers, and have been all granted. The reason that this one was revoked was because it was a specific request to regulate greenhouse gases, i.e. CO2, out of the tailpipe, which, according to the Trump administration and the Bush administration prior to the Obama administration, did not meet the requirements under federal law. So I just wanted to bring that up because... Uh, I have actually made it part of my mission in the last few weeks to, to tag every tweet from a reporter who misleads the public about this very issue. Mike, do you want to talk a little bit about this issue overall and what we expect? Yeah, I mean, bottom line is the the real question here is it's one national standard. Someone has to establish it. it makes sense for the federal government to do it um, rather than the state of California. I don't. I didn't vote for anybody in the state of California and. Um, you know, 275 million of my fellow citizens didn't vote for anybody in the state of California either. So California shouldn't have a, an ability to tell me what to do. Um, and the next, you know, the next step is California is going to throw up a bunch of arguments about how this is about states' rights or federalism or all that other stuff. It's not. It's really about California imposing its will on everybody else. The second part of it that's most, probably the most important, like always, is the money part of it, Right. Right now, everybody in the country pays for California standard, right? Um, you know, it's it's now cheaper for California to virtue signal um, because um, they set a standard and everybody winds up um, having to meet it, which makes it easier for California to meet their own problems, to solve their own problems. So, you know, with the waiver, that's going to end now. The Californians want to have a, 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 a um, more aggressive policy towards um, fleet efficiency, they're going to have to pay for it on their own. And that's, that's what they really object to, that they can't shift the costs off to everybody else. So there's been a lot of back and forth on this. Um, the Trump administration announced very early on that they had uh, intended to do this. They issued uh, some 
draft rules um, well over a year ago, right, at this point. Um, and we have been hearing this back and forth be between California and the administration. And uh, it's basically a political football in that the Californians claim that they're attempting to try to reach a deal with the Trump administration. We all know that there will never be an instance where it, now Governor Newsom, then Governor Brown, and the Attorney General Javier Becerra uh, are going to stand on a podium with Donald Trump and sing Kumbaya yeah. over a climate issue. Yeah, the interesting thing about that, right, was Mary Nichols admitted, essentially in congressional testimony, admitted uh, six months ago or four months ago, whatever it was, that she had never gotten authorization from anybody above her in the state government to negotiate with EPA. So all this talk about, you know, California's in earnest and in good faith negotiating, blah, 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 total fiction. California is never going to negotiate it, um, you know, and, and the automakers are uh, caught in the middle and have done what folks who usually get caught in the middle do, stared at the headlights as they headed on down towards them, and they're, they're irrelevant to the process now. Right? Well, some of them are in the middle. Um, some of them actually chose a side recently uh, and, and reached a quote-unquote voluntary agreement with the state of California, which of course has no I was gonna say it's force of force of law of anything. Yeah, that's that's vaporware, right? It's propaganda. It's not it's not anything. It, it, there's no like you said, there's no enforcement mechanism, there's no force of law on it. So, you know, it, if you don't have an enforcement mechanism, you don't have a law. It doesn't get any simpler than that, right? Doesn't matter what it is. Yeah, my argument was that that, that was an attempt to try to bully or to pressure the Trump administration. Yeah. To reach some kind of a you know deal or extend extend this out further, look, my experience has been I'm very close to this. This is a really important issue for consumers. That really uh, the result of this and the second part, which is what are the mile per gallon mandates that will ultimately be set, will determine whether or not millions of Americans can afford a new car. Um, and so yes, I'm pretty passionate about this. The Trump administration was never, in my view ever rattled by any of the California rhetoric, any of the rhetoric from the autos. Uh, my sense on this is, is that he, the administration and, and President Trump have been square in on the side of consumers from day one on this issue. Yeah, I think there's some of that. I, I mean, I agree, right? The president certainly has been right. Some of the staff folks get a little confused about who they're working for from time to time, right? They you know, they, they keep bringing the automakers in like they're important to the process. And in a way, they're not. This is about consumers. Um, it's about workers. It's about cars costing 3000 bucks more on average than they should. It's about who subsidizes who, right? We shouldn't be subsidizing rich people in California. And that's that, right? Um, like in a lot of cases, you know, like I said, the, the president gets all of this staff does but it always gets a little shaky sometimes yeah and i just it's worth reminding people why we're in this mess in the first place uh, the reason we're in this mess in the first place is because the obama administration issued a rule uh to create a mile per gallon mandate that is absolutely unworkable and they promised the automakers a quote-unquote mid-course review of that 54 mile per gallon fleet-wide average, um, they were supposed to have that review in January of 2017. Well, the uh, 
Obama administration did not like the results of the last election. They didn't get theirs in uh, their candidate in office. And so what did they do? They rushed the review before President Trump took office and said, you know what? There's absolutely no issue here. The autos can meet this mandate. We're all good. Also, California continues to get to run this program. That is what tr triggered this whole thing. And, and the second thing I want to say, and this is the part that irritates me, is the way that this issue is being covered by the media at large. They're giving the impression that this is Donald Trump taking away California's ability to set its own rules. They're making these ridiculous states' rights arguments. They're trying to confuse or to try to like get Republicans to say, oh, well, yeah, this is kind of a violation of states' rights, but it's a special circumstance. No, it is absolutely not. It is not federalism when one state in fact, one unelected bureaucrat in Sacramento gets to determine national environmental policy. Yeah, I mean, I'm amazed that the media is inaccurate and perhaps intentionally so. That that almost never happens, especially in our line of work. Yeah. What do you got? Uh, to my mind, the most interesting thing that happened in the last week has been these two things, right? On the streets of Washington, there were a bunch of climate protests, two of which were especially interesting, right? One was a, an actual dumpster was lit on fire at the corner of 18th and Massachusetts, which I thought, I'm not sure what that's emblematic of, whether, you know, it's the, the dumpster fire is, is climate activist, put that in quotes, community. Um, the other was a guy handcuffed himself to a boat outside the White House, and I thought two things about that, right? I'm like, okay, first off, that's the most creative thing I may have ever run across in protest politics. I mean, you usually people handcuff themselves to gates or fences or whatever. Handcuffing yourself to a boat, that's awesome. And then thing number two is I thought the Metropolitan Police Department should probably just tow the boat out to the Potomac River and put it in the water, see how anxious the guy was to remain handcuffed to it as it went into the water. So that was one. And then the, the second thing was this climate summit in New York, right? The thread that ties them both together is neither accomplished anything. Yeah, actually, actually uh, I drove a week. I gave the staff the option to come in. I literally got all the way up to 16th under the tunnel, and maybe I idled for an extra four or five minutes, which is also ironic because what the climate protest actually did was cause people like me to idle a little bit longer in their cars, which, of course, theoretically isn't good for the planet. So um, not sure what they accomplished there. In fact, the day after the summit, the protest, I should say, I actually got, it took me longer to get in. So mild inconvenience in some cases, a lot of idle cars, and not really winning any fans or converts uh, over to their side. Right. It you know it, it protest politics have a lot of limits, and we saw them all. And like I said, the the climate summit has been a great big giant dud. Right. It was supposed to be a big thing, and everybody was going to talk about it, and they were everyone's going to commit to to um, targets that were twice as aggressive as Paris. And Greta Thunberg was going to show up and tell us all what terrible people we were, which she did, by the way. Um, but at the end of the day. Nobody paid any attention to it. The, the Ukrainian thing um, just blew all that off the off the um, front pages. There's not going to be any more agreement. You know, people are starting. I believe the governments are starting to have a little bit of fatigue with this issue. They're like, okay, you know, no matter what we agreed to, you guys always want more. And for a politician, somewhere around time number two or three, when you come back for more, the attitude is, you got what you got, that's it, go away and stop bothering me. And I think the climate guys are pretty close to that. 
So, well, the other thing too is it's gone beyond uh, an issue, and uh, you talk about a dumpster fire. I mean, we're in theater of the absurd with this issue. Um, it is now a sort of an organizational tool for the Democratic operatives for the environmental left, which is now sort of one in the same as the Democratic operatives. You've got all these candidates running for president on the on the Democratic side who are trying to out I hate fossil fuel each other, uh, making absurd claims like we're going to go all uh, zero carbon emission by 2050, no more internal combustion engine vehicles, carbon taxes, uh, you name it, they're all about it. Uh, bans on fracking on private and state land, which is basically, you know, probably not. Yeah. I think the Constitution might have a little, uh, you know, Boy. might have a little say about that. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that none of, none of these guys know that any of this is going to happen. They're trying to placate the environmental left, the the Democratic donors. They want their money. They want their organization. And so that's that's the price that we pay now is this absurd policy proclamation from the Democratic Party. Well, it's it's a little worse than that, right? Because, you know, what the Democratic candidates have managed to do on this issue and other issues, but this issue actually has a number attached to it, right? They managed to bid themselves up, each one saying, hey, my plan's going to cost a trillion dollars. My plan's going to cost three trillion dollars. And that's the way they construct the argument, right? In a general election, unless their opponent, unless the president is completely hopeless, it's going to be very easy to say, these guys think we should increase your energy costs by, or your taxes by $10 trillion or $3 trillion or $4 trillion. It's going to be impossible for whoever the Democratic nominee is to run away from the number they've given us, right? And what the odd thing here is I've never run across a campaign where people had a contest to see who was going to increase energy costs more. And that's essentially what we've been talking about. So, you know, to my mind, the protesters and the Democratic uh, candidates for the candidates for the Democratic nomination are the same. They're fighting to see how difficult they can make life for average Americans, and average Americans are going to punish them at some point, if not at the polls, um, then some point after that. Uh, you know, and the interesting thing is, if making energy was so expensive, making energy more expensive was was a winner political issue. The United States House of Representatives, controlled by the Democrats, would have already had constructed a bunch of carbon tax votes. They've yeah, had, you know they've had control for nine months. We've had no votes. Yeah, the same argument can be made for back in the day when Harry Reid was in charge of the Senate. The Democrats had the had a supermajority. Never once did we see any yeah. any meaningful sort of climate related legislation go to the Senate floor. But yet, as soon as they're no longer in charge, they clamor about not you know not you know the, the leadership and the Republicans not bringing these things down. The other thing, too, is I, I'm increasingly concerned about this This sort of, I don't know, maybe you're better at this public opinion research stuff than me. You know, we have seen this ramping up of end of the end of days rhetoric with this issue. You know, it's, it's sort of become almost comical. First, it was 12 years. Now it's 10. You know, you've got, you know, Princes, uh, Prince Harry and others talking about we got 18 months. Where does this, what, what's, Game this out for me a little bit. Like, are they going to reach a point where it's like they're going to just this issue is going to fall off a cliff or are we dealing with this for a very long time? I think there's two possible pathways and I'm not sure which one um, we go down. Right. Possible pathway. Number one is we wind up with it being like civil rights in this country. Right. Where it's a where it's a constant low level boil thing. 
that everyone has to pay rhetorical obeisance to, but nothing ever actually gets done, right? Um, that's a possibility, number one. And, and I think that's probably the likely course, right? You know, you think about it internationally, everybody always talks about, oh, it's an incredible crisis, blah, 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 blah. And then they go home and build coal plants. You know, and they fly home, you know, they fly home in their private jets. So, yeah, let me let me interrupt you for a second, because I read an article in The Guardian, I think, mm -hmm. or, or some British paper where the EU actually increased their private jet budget by 50 percent. Yeah. Recently. Yeah. I mean, it's it's you know, it's 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 comical, it's hypocritical, and it makes people very it makes it very difficult to argue that it's a serious emergency. If the people who say it's a serious emergency don't act like it's a serious emergency, an existential threat is the phrase everybody likes. So that's one, right? It's a civil rights, you know, it's going to it's going to go the same track as civil rights, where it's always rhetorical but never substantive. The other um, possibility is it's like nuclear weapons, um, where you know it's a you know uh, arms control treaties, very you know very much top of mind, 60s, 70s, 80s. But then when the Soviet Union dissolved, um, you don't really hear much about arms control treaties anymore because no one cares because there's no one who's going to actually fire off a nuclear weapon at anybody, right? That's another possible pathway that, you know, we all wake up one morning and say, this is ridiculous. Um, you know, given the propagandization of the youth, I find that second one harder to imagine, you know, our... our in this issue, like in so many others, our best hope might be the third world, right? The folks who are who are not being brought up in the secular, poorly informed, poorly educated West. Well, I appreciate you you, you weaving in the word secular because it increasingly uh, you know feels like a substitute for religion to me. And you know, I've seen images of Greta uh, with a halo around her head, right? Um, you know, the, some of the imagery that I've seen. Some of the, the, the comments that I've heard, not just, you know, from the Gretas of the world, but just, you know, man on the street type interviews. It just it's mind boggling to me how much it has sort of become a, almost a religious exercise for 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 these folks, these, these folks who, who yeah, think it, this is such I a mean, it can't big be, issue. You, nobody can think of it as a rational thing. Right. You know, the. the the data is pretty clear. No matter how you think about it, it's a manageable, even if you think it's on the far edge of like, you know, the worst case, it's a manageable threat. And the right answer is keep growing your economies. That makes you able to adapt and mitigate and blah, 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 right? You know, and, and in a world in which 40 million people still starve to death and die of malnutrition every year, it's very difficult to imagine that this is an existential threat. Anybody who says that with a straight face, they need to really go hang out in, at the far edges of, of the food distribution network on this planet. They need to go hang out in sub-Saharan Africa. They need to go hang out in India, in Pakistan, in far western China, places like that where people are dying, actually dying as a result of not having something. That's an existential threat, a legitimately existential threat. This is a manageable problem, a pain in the neck, a blister, a nothing. It's somewhere on that continuum, right? Yeah, I think though it's frustrating as uh, folks who do this these issues on a daily basis. Uh, if you are not for all of the things that they're for, you are a denier. If you are not for government takeovers, redistribution of wealth, taxing carbon, if you're not for all of these things, which we have seen throughout history do not work, then you are simply part of the problem. Get out of my way. Um, it's you know, and then the other thing too that's kind of irking me 
and I had some more articles, but I'm going to stay on this for a little bit, is I don't understand why these energy companies, particularly the big guys, are not defending themselves. These politicians are calling them criminals. They're running around saying that, that they're, they're, they're um, you know, like tobacco companies who, who are, you know, basically misleading the public about the evil uh, that they cause in the world. And I don't see any pushback. Well, I mean, the one thing we learned, you know, the tobacco things are instructive. The one thing we've learned from this is, from the tobacco thing, and we're learning it here, is uh, American corporations, global corporations, are uniquely poorly suited to defend what they do. Um, you know, anybody pushes back on it, whatever it is, doesn't matter. Make steel, make cement, make electricity, make um, gasoline, make tobacco, make cigarettes. Right? It doesn't matter. They're incapable, unwilling, incapable of pushing back on it. And, and I, I think it's because, for the most part, corporate managers are not hired because they're smart at PR. They're not hired because they believe in the mission of the company. They're hired because they're managers, because they're good at finance, or they're good at operations, or they're good at this, they're good at that. But none of them are hired because they're committed to the cause of whatever the company is, right? The difference between those guys and startups, when somebody in charge of a startup actually cares about it. It's their blood, it's their sweat, it's their bones. Yeah. But, you, know, you know, in this case, the equivalent of a startup are sort of the, the independent yeah, energy absolutely. companies who are starting to, to yeah. kind of... They've kind of had it, I've sensed. Uh, they just don't have the kind of resources yeah. that these other companies have for their big advertising budgets and whatnot. It just irks me that, that they're being called criminals. Um, these these products, uh, you know, look, 30 years ago, 80% of our energy came from three sources. Today, 80% of our energy comes from three sources. Mm. Every predictor and predictions are, are only worth, you know, uh, the piece of paper they're written on. But every major sort of forecasting, um, you know, entity, whether government or private, all say that the same three resources, coal, oil, and natural gas, are going to power this earth 30 years from now. We're looking at margins here uh, of change on renewables, on EVs, and, and these kind of things. Uh, the, the inevitability is, is that we need to do more, be more efficient with the resources that work. And that will get to what you were saying earlier about, you know, adapt, adapting and adjusting to, to whatever changes are taking place. Yeah. I mean, two, two things, right? Um, and I'll, I'll roll to a different story right at the second thing. First, it's very difficult for companies to even just say, hey, energy is a good thing. Affordable energy is a good thing, right? It makes everyone's life better. Affordable and reliable energy makes all kinds of parts of your life better, including making, you know, the possibility that you're going to live you know, higher, right? You know, you refrigerate medicines, you get air conditioning in the summer, you get heat in the winter, all the things that used to actually kill people. Um, you know, we, we ameliorate it. You can't even get executives to say something as simple as that. You know, they, they will not um, even do the, the minimum for the most part. That's thing one. Thing two is, um, and Detroit Edison, I think, was the latest company, but you've had a couple of companies in, in a string of states say, hey, we're going to set a goal of zero emissions uh, net zero emissions, carbon emissions by 2050, right? And, you know, you, the companies love that idea because at, not only is it is it beyond everyone's working life who's currently in the C-suites, it's beyond their life life. And you, you're, it's 2020, you're a CEO, you're 58 years old, you're like, 2050, I'm going to be 88. You know, what's left of me is going to be sitting in a nursing home thinking about, you know, how great I was when I was 12 years old. 
so it's great timing. You know, and the environmentalists have done a good a good job here because they, they know no one wants to vote to increase energy prices. They know that um, this research and development, this this you know innovation thing, is is more or less a a fantasy as far as reducing emissions, right? That you're going to have government-based innovation reducing emissions. That's not going to happen, right? Um, so what they've done is said is they've set these long-dated goals, and what's going to happen is they're going to ratchet down on them over time because they know the companies. Hey, as long as it's long-dated enough, companies don't care. And states aren't going to be held responsible, but it's going to be something they're going to litigate on over time and just, you know, establish beachheads and start to crush everybody. And, again, companies don't care. For governors, it's great because you get the press release. You're not going to do anything. Well, governors, uh, politicians, governors like uh, King Cuomo in New York can set these ambitious rules. They're not going to be around when the bill is due. They're not going to be accountable to the ratepayers. They're not going to be accountable to New Yorkers or Californians or Washingtonians. The, that is uh, also a, a, a motivation for them uh, to basically be creating policies that make energy more expensive, that do marginally uh, better in terms of, of environmental negative environmental impacts, and and are completely un not grounded in reality um, at all quite honestly. And and that leads me to one other issue. Uh, and then we got to wrap. Gas bans. Uh, we're seeing now three or four um, counties in California push out these natural gas, uh, residential natural gas bans. Three, four counties, you know, okay, whatever. It's crazy California. Five, six counties, seven, eight counties, 10 counties, all of a sudden, uh, this is becoming a big issue. Uh, another one where regular folks, low-income folks especially, get hammered. Uh, natural gas is cheap, plentiful, affordable, reliable. Oh, by the way, I don't want to cook on a range top. No offense, but I prefer my natural gas uh, stove. Uh, a lot of people who like to cook uh, probably have the same opinion. There, there's two issues here. One is is that the the greens and the left used to like natural gas until we started producing a ton of it here at home. One, two. Now that they know that as far as the eye can see, natural gas is going to be cheap, plentiful, affordable, and reliable, they are resorting to flat-out coercion yeah. to achieve their, their goals. Yeah. And consumers are going to get the ones who are going to lose the discount from the production of these resources here at home. Yeah. I'm, I'm worried about it. I look at it and I think, okay, that's bad because you think how many counties could do it in the United States? Probably 50, 60 counties, right, um, without much pushback because the only organized groups who care about it are, of course, the the natural gas and the pipeline guys and, the oddly enough, the restaurant community, right? They're going to, you know, everywhere where restaurants are, are, are plentiful, they're going to push back on that. But what I really worry about is it's precedential. Um, this, is a, this is a test run. It's not really about natural gas. This is a test run for cars. Oh yeah, counties counties that are counties that are getting rid of natural gas um, hookups are going to be the same ones that try to ban cars in certain sections of cities. I guarantee you that is the next thing we're going to is that you're going to have um, private vehicles banned from some chunk of cities, just like in Europe, right? It's it's what the left wants, and like you say, giving up on waiting. They're going to coercion now. Yeah, we'll save uh, we'll save a discussion on electric cars for the next podcast because we could do a whole one just on that issue alone. Uh, I'm going to switch gears now. Uh, in every episode, 
We are uh, not just going to talk about energy and politics uh, and policy, uh, and I'm going to bring up the the, the playoffs. Uh, the Yankees are poised now, uh, win, won the division. Uh, we're going into the final few games of the season. Game this out for me, McKenna. Who's going to uh, – who, who, what are the Yankees' chances? What are, we, what are we working with? I think the Yankees win their first series against the Twins probably in four. Um, I think – the trickier question is who they get in the second series. I think it's probably going to be the Athletics who are going to survive and play the Astros. I think the Athletics could beat the Astros in five games. I think if the Yankees play the Athletics, the Athletics win in seven. I think if the Yankees play the Astros, the Yankees win in six. So I'm not exactly sure how it turns out. And then I'll, I'll tell you right now, um, whoever comes out of the American League is going to wipe out the National League. It's not going to be competitive. It'll be a five-game series. I think the Dodgers are overrated. Yeah, um, I, I don't agree. think that they've got what it takes to, to win the World Series. Um, you never know. The, the Nationals are looking good. They've got they got a good rotation. Um, they got a strong three. The problem with the Nationals is everybody relies on Max Scherzer to throw a gem every time he goes out. And he's not. He's, he hasn't done that now. And he, I think he's hurt. You can tell this way he's pitching. He's not top of his game. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. No, no. Uh, so my take on the Yanks are that they uh, are going to either win or lose the way that they lumbered through this season. It's been an, uh, an incredible uh, sort of next man up situation. Uh, they're down some pretty significant uh, talent going in. Uh, we lost Hawkman. Uh, this Herman thing is a disaster. Um, you know, I don't know if we're going to see Encarnacion. I think that the Yankees have the best, far and away, the best bullpen in the in, of all the teams that are in the playoffs. And if they can get some combination of three, four innings per game through out of out of their starting rotation per game, I think that they've got what it takes pitching wise to get in. It was an interesting. Um, conversation I overheard the other day on, on, on a podcast of some, of some sort. Everyone talks about how home run hitting teams aren't suited yeah. for the playoffs. Yeah. And the argument was, you know, the argument is, is, well, you know, teams that are b- built on home runs do not do well in the playoffs because the pitching's so good. Actually, uh, the statistic, and I don't have these specific numbers, but what happens in playoff games is good pitching means less offensive output period yeah and if you are a home run hitting team if you do get hits you have a higher probability of getting home runs so in other words you can't string three four five hits in a row to bang out a run or two against good pitching but one mistake two run home run boom that could be the difference in the ball game so it kind of threw this whole sort of legend of of teams built on home runs don't do as well in playoffs yeah. I mean, I'll make it simple, and I think it is simple. I think everyone focuses – the Yankees, you focus on the pitching. I think that's wrong. I think if the Yankees get any two hitters, any two, Stanton and Judge, Judge and Torres, LeMahieu and Torres, LeMahieu and Judge, it matters. doesn't matter the combination. If any two guys get hot, they carry the whole team. They carry the, they'll score seven or eight runs a game, and the pitching won't matter. If, the, if they don't get hot – if they if they keep you know kind of if they just bumble through as best they can, the Yankees aren't going to win. It, it's just that simple. Somebody's going to get hot and carry the team, or they're not, and that's that. And and you know I don't I don't think I don't think it's going to be particularly close either. I think you're going to see a lot of eight two scores one way or the other. 
Well, that would be great. Well, the bottom line is uh, Yanks are in this year, excited, uh, a very interesting team to watch throughout the season. Uh, and more importantly, the Red Sox are eliminated. <laughs> well, that's it. The end of our inaugural podcast, the Unregulated Podcast. Uh, again, I'm your host, Tom Pyle. And I'm Mike McKenna, and we're just going to chill to the next episode. Peace out, everybody.